Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm very well, David, very well. Excited about this uh, episode. Always excited, but I think uh, we've got quite a bit planned for part one. We're involved in a very big topic generally related to childhood, images of childhood and popular culture, the experience of childhood, and the experience of parenthood, which is something that you're dealing with very directly minute to minute. So I think we'll just get started. You, you've going to, I think, help uh, our listeners with uh, laying out some of the, the major topics, how we've gotten to this point, and what we hope to cover, if not in this episode, how we intend to evolve our focus on, our short-term focus at least, on childhood over maybe another couple of episodes. So maybe you can just kick it off that way. Yes. So last time that we spoke, my brain began firing off in all different directions. So I got to reading and writing in my notebook. And when I was done with it, I had all of this different stuff that you and I have touched on briefly in the pregame, but that I kind of wanted to lay out. Before I do that, just as a reference point, last time on the episode, uh, Chris and I talked about how to sort of raise a child in the world that we have today. And we talked briefly about perhaps uh, controlling the the mediums of how children receive information rather than teaching them how to think in particular. We also had an interesting discussion where Chris and I fell on semi-different different sides of the coin when it came to uh, the influence of economics on the way that families have uh, have been raised and, and what their what their value systems are. And in that um, conversation, we talked very. We we mentioned very specifically the difference between a uh, cultures who have values and cultures that have goals. And I actually said those two uh, different words interchangeably. And Chris very astutely pointed out that value is what we want to look at here. So broadly speaking, we're talking about ceremony, and we're talking about initiation rites. We're talking about the transition between childhood, and or the transition rather from childhood into adulthood, and how that's ushered in by the community around the child. And broadly speaking, what we've come to is that that child needs to have some sort of adult figure or community that have shared values to which they can be directing the child within the initiation, right? And so we talked about a lot of uh, fun ones. A couple episodes ago, I brought a kind of list that had everything from Hamar cow jumping to Rumspringer to, you know, the Maasai drinking blood and, uh, and milk, which I hope uh, our patrons looked at the video that I put up of that because it's uh, it's very interesting. They're they're drinking the blood from a trough, uh, which is a, a little bit more uh, roady than I had originally expected it to be, but also awesome in its own way. So, for this particular episode, what I wanted to do before we got started is I wanted to kind of continue along with what we were talking about earlier, which is uh, how to uh, raise a kid and how to perhaps create communities of shared value systems. Now, Chris brought up some interesting points last time, just to completely connect the end of last episode to this one. And we will get to each one of these in time. 
perhaps not this time, but we will get to them. He brought up the uh, Kula Ring ceremony, uh, in the which is from the Trobrian Islands. I have that right, right, Chris? Yes, you do. Sure yes. Uh-huh. Okay, excellent. The Kula Ring ceremony, um, if you want a bit of a description of that, it's in last episode, and I'm going to save any further explication of that for if we if we get to it this episode. He brought up the... Uh, the issue of modern society's tendency to sort of neuter uh, young boys, to kind of take away the kind of rough and tumble boyness of boyhood and how that might have bleed out effects into what we're seeing now in adult men. And he brought up what I think is a big subject, but also very cool, the archetypes of childhood, which could potentially link to some of my thoughts about uh, animism and childhood as well. So we kind of have those three uh, issues there that we can talk about, but I very specifically kind of got on this kick, and I think that Chris is such a great kind of font of, of wisdom and knowledge. I'm, you know, from a practical standpoint, you know, I got a, I got a son. He's uh, three months old now, and I am very, very concerned with how to raise him in this world. And I don't mean that in the way that I think is typically meant by it. You know, I think that a lot of folks these days tend to dwell on the negative. You know, I don't want my son being raised in a world that's always on fire or that's covered in pollutants or that's going to end soon by war, famine, disease, what have you, what have you. Those are all, you know, sort of <laughs> background noise anxieties that I think are at times hard to avoid. But I mean, in a positive sense, really learning how to raise a kid and instill in them some positive values that come from a community. So I'm briefly going to kind of flip it over to Chris here, see what he thinks about that. Or perhaps if we want to talk about one of those other three subjects, we can do that as well. And also, just in case there's anything really important that I left out, I want to make sure that he fills in those blanks. So Chris, how does that sound so far? I think that's very good in what I was uh, hoping you would say. Um, with the issues from, from the last episode, I think what we're trying to say there is we, we often touch on you know more material than we can get to uh, in, in, an, in an hour plus. And, uh, but we just want to let people know that we're keeping track of some of these issues and that, that things really do connect and they, they kind of percolate back into frame when when it's time for them to. And I think we will get back to these issues. Uh, the Kula ceremony is a world example of an indigenous culture doing something that cuts across every aspect of society from animist magic to very fundamental basic issues of social prestige and community support, community commitment. Uh, the archetypal children is, I think, just unbelievably interesting and something that's hard to avoid. We'll keep coming in and out of that. I think how we're raising boys is a, an issue that uh, we'll touch on from time to time. And so there's a lot going on. Um, I think there are a couple of things to start us off with that I just want to reinforce from what David just said. Uh, we have referred to uh, Henri Bergson, who is the Nobel Prize winning uh, French philosopher, and to some extent scientist, huge influence on another one of our heroes, Rupert Sheldrake, 
For people who wonder why negative strategies or the, the process of negation in very simple terms is just not the way to go, uh, Bergson is one of the best, most lucid thinkers about that. It isn't just be positive. It isn't a Pollyanna-ish sort of thing. He lays it out much more seriously in an adult way and in a better way than I've heard anyone, uh, any even the great uh, rhetorical uh, commentators, that you, you have to have a positive framework as in a sense of an assertion, uh, an objective, something that is not just a negative. And we need that in our personal lives and we need that in our cultural practices. You can't tell a young person, uh, by example, don't do everything. Don't do this. Don't do that. You know, that's, <laughs> you have to do that, of course, tactically. But as a, as a grand strategy for life, it is the simple truth that only positive steps really are effective. And Bergson lays that out so beautifully. And it's very clear because when you're acting positively, you're really making two steps at most. And when you're acting from a, a point of negation, you're having to take three. So he does it very practically. Mm -hmm. The other yeah. thing I thought that was very interesting, and it's something that that uh, I think David is going to pick up on with several of the other points, but it does tie in a lot of what we've said about the process of raising children and growing up. Let's look at it from a first-person point of view. Growing yeah. up in Western society in America particularly, versus, say, some of the indigenous cultures that we've looked at, the distinction between values and goals. Goals are absolutely synonymous with an objective. They're an end result. And they assume a kind of plot, a kind of, of process. And, and that's a promise, that it, an implicit promise that is made to individuals within a society. Well, I submit that that promise is, is very insincerely made in, in our culture. So that I think one of the issues, and this is a broader frame that David and I are looking at, where there is an official pronouncement or an official practice, a denotative approach to behavior. But in fact, there is a connotative colloquial real life behavior and process that's working in directly opposite terms. And I think this is a golden example where many people start off with this implicit sense that there are goals and that there are consensus agreed upon milestones within, say, American society. And it's just not so. And or if they where they are so, they're so superficial. You know, it really becomes quite pathetic relative to the the great magical ceremonies and and belief systems that we, we you know we did look at a few of those that really have some uh, some real meaning to them, but also some fun. Uh, I think that the Maasai issue of drinking you know blood of you know there's a real sacred element to that, and many of these cultures are not at all afraid of having a sacred element. Whereas I think in America, everyone's just you know, running for the hills, at the, you know, sacred makes people scared, as I Irony say. poisoning, yeah. You know, and there's a, you know, make a mistake with the sacred you know, in a typo sense, and you get scared. I think I've always found that interesting, you know. So yeah. there are a couple of things there to, to, to I, I like the idea of hinging on uh, 
goals versus values and the yeah. implicit promise and and we're saying I'm using promise here in the the a positive proactive way what mm-hmm. what to expect you know what's going to be delivered by this society by these magical cultural mechanisms are are they going to live up to delivering on the goals or mm-hmm. and i think that in america we could look and say well no they're not that's my personal yeah. <laughs> view but i'd also suggest that we could look at uh the side effects of where they do deliver or attempt to because some of those are not so pleasant um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I have more experience with with people quite a bit older than David's new son Gus, um, but you know it's all part of a life continuum, and these problems don't go away as people get more mobile and uh, capable financially. So that's Absolutely. a good framework to start with. I, I think that we haven't we're not putting aside the other uh, topics that we did mention last episode. They they, they will uh, they're still on our radar and, and we will get to them. Absolutely. Cool. Well, I want to circle back really quick and talk about a couple of things that you mentioned a few minutes ago, namely about positivity versus negativity. I think Bergson's very logical, you know, uh, two actions versus three actions makes a lot of sense. The power of positive thinking to use a, no, I believe that's Norman Vincent Peale from memory, but I'm not sure. I think that is uh, right. Yeah. Um, Certainly he's associated with it. Yeah. 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 He's associated with the, the new thought movement basically, uh, of the, of that movement. Uh, Neville Goddard was somebody who I really have a lot of time for thanks to the work of uh, Mitch Horowitz who's done books like Occult America and The Miracle Habits uh, he's, he's kind of a, a punk rock guy in Brooklyn I believe who has sort of devoted his recent career to bringing back these 1920s uh, power of positive thinking thinkers and um, essentially when you uh, tell someone not to do something like don't uh, don't drive your car 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. Um, these, I believe it was Goddard who said the human brain interprets that without the negative attached to it. So as a practical use, you know, when you're trying to say something like don't smoke a cigarette, the only thing your brain is hearing is smoke a cigarette, right? That don't somehow gets excised and we have a real hard time parsing out uh, that kind of thing. So you want to always be using sort of positive, uh, assertive, affirmative statements in order to, you know, kind of move forward and be able to better enact your values in life. And from a magical occult perspective, right, this whole, um, th- there's this big difference between saying, you know, I, I want something. When you're doing sigil magic, um, you never want to put I want X, Y, Z. You want to write the sigil as though you you already have it, right? So it's also important, I think, to adjust the speech to to not be, you know, fantasizing about something that might happen in the future, but to positively, affirmatively, assertively uh, say right now that that thing is the thing that you either have or that you're enacting, right? So that's just, just kind of to, to go with to go with your point. But on the on the values front. 
because I think that this is a good place to start. I like your framing of it as we'll talk about sort of perhaps maybe some values that could be seen as alternative to the quote unquote goals of society, but also uh, the goals themselves and the unintended consequence. So it, it might be a good idea to maybe split these into some kind of dichotomies here, like what what a what a goal or I'm sorry, what a value is and how that could potentially relate to a goal. So I have a bunch of values here written down. Um, and I'll just read the first one here and then we can kind of go from there. So the first value that I think is so important is uh, imagination, a robust imagination. And the reason why I think that that as a value is so important is because it encourages um, children and by extension adults to number one, think for themselves, to be able to create, um, to live in a world that is kind of more alive, that isn't constantly being you know, sort of analyzed. And I wonder if the competing forces on that right now, um, which are movies, TV, um, pundits, uh, thoughts about all, you know, all these different colonizing thoughts that we have to sort of deal with on a daily basis via Twitter or Facebook. I wonder if the goals that we have as a society is <laughs> the goal of selling ad space isn't kind of con uh, colonizing the imaginative area. So what do you think of, of imagination as, as, a, as a primary value? Well, I, uh, I support that completely. It's the, you know, it, it's really the main focus of the, the big textbook, which I've just delivered to Rutledge Press. And there's quite a bit of, of the book. I mean, although it's creative writing uh, directed, it really looks at, at imagination in, in larger terms. And I do try to put uh, some specific parameters on that. I, I, I define it in terms of alertness and alertness to several different aspects of life, alertness to, to language because of our deep dependence on it, alertness to culture in, in several different ways, and alertness to our physical surroundings and how social systems in, invariably interlace with, with natural habitat, which, you know, we in an urbanized, technology-driven uh, culture like America, lowercase c culture, uh, we, we tend to forget the the natural habitat. I mean, I, I've had many students who just, in, just intrinsically believe that there's more nature in Montana than there is in Manhattan, you know, and, and they can't see past that. That's their frame of reference. So they've, they've completely debilitated the idea of nature, and really they're not going to reinvestigate that, um, which is, I think, exactly what imagination doesn't do. I think imagination is constantly curious, experimental, uh, in part dissatisfied, um, in part suspicious, uh, excited, uh, committed to engagement. You know, there are a lot of, lot of churning values within the value of imagination, I guess is my, my, uh, a, a way of summing up my answer to that. So I, th I think imagination is, is a terrific thing to to talk about it as a starting point. Um, the one aspect of what you said that that is 
was on my mind a great deal while writing the textbook. I kept coming uh, across quotations from major people, Baudelaire, Heraclitus, Pascal, that associate uh, imagination and or potentially genius with childhood regained at will. And I, I both relate to that and that resonates with me. And it also, there's a conflict. I, I feel as if it, it puts forward a, a model that is kind of idealistic and romantic about childhood, as if children all start filled with wonder and possibility and uh, life stomps it out of them. I mean, I think there's certainly some truth to that. There's no question. Uh, you know, and we talked about Blake in an earlier episode, Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience. Um, but I don't like, to me, that that romantic notion of childhood as being a, a state of uniform, generalized, imaginative living. Well, first of all, it just isn't true. There are plenty of, of children who aren't imaginative, um, and they they don't have anything to be lost or anything to be stomped out of them. I think that's a little naive. Uh, but I wonder if what I wonder if, in a sense, uh, imagination as a starting point should be more a goal as as well as a value because oh, interesting. It, yeah. you know it, it's something that we need to constantly put uh, I, I guess better and better frames around in I mean part of imagination is breaking all the frames, of course. But if you think of it more as, as a, a subtle sense of hunting some very interesting animal and, and following it and, and, and paying attention to its habitats and, and trying to be part of its point of view, uh, then that's a different kind of, of level of definition and framing. I, I, that's the kind of thing I mean. But what, what to you, when, when you said imagination is your first value and I'm going to kind of assume it's the primary value. Tell us more about what you how you view that and how do you view that already in in terms of Gus's life? Well, for Gus, imagination is a bit difficult to to get across because you know, he's still just in uh what Piaget calls, you know, the sensory motor phase where, you know, he's kind of just discovering how different connections are made you know he's like developing object permanence and all that all that kind of fun stuff but i can use an example that i uh that i did with my three-year-old niece who is just she's just great you know she's so curious about the world and she's very loud and rambunctious and boisterous and i just love her i think she's great but the last time i talked to her over the phone i was actually talking to my mother and she was there and anytime she hears the phone on, she yells, hi, <laughs> doesn't matter what you're saying, right? You could be in the middle of a thought and she just, you know, starts talking. And so I was kind of talking to her over the phone and she asked me what I was doing. And I said, oh, well, I'm going to the moon. She said, oh, really? And I said, yeah, I'm getting my spaceship ready and I'm going to the moon. Do you think there's anything in particular that I should pack? And she said, clothes. And then she said, food. And I said, okay, fine. And it's funny because when I said all that, I was I was joking with her, right? I actually wasn't thinking about this as some kind of imaginative exercise. 
So the next day, uh, mom calls. By the way, my, mo- my mother calls me every day because she wants to know how the baby's doing. Uh, and I'm right. kind of a mama's boy, so whatever. But she calls the next day, and <laughs> my niece is anxious to know how my trip to the moon went. And I thought, oh, that really took. In my cynical adultness, I thought that that would have been taken as kind of a funny aside and then left alone. But no, she was very curious how my trip to the moon went. I said, well, you know, sweetie, I didn't make it to the moon because I I ran out of gas. And she said, oh, oh. So what are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm feeding my dinosaurs. I have about 10 little dinosaurs in my backyard, and I'm, I'm feeding them all Cheerios. And she liked that. Fast forward to the next day. I ask her what she's doing, and she says, well, my dinosaurs went to the moon. And I was like, okay, cool. We're cooking with gas here. Now we're getting to a point where the imagination is kicking on, because she is a great kid. Um, But as most kids, I think, are like now, I mean, you know, she watches a lot of TV, and a lot of her communication seems to be based around when can I, you know, turn the TV on, I'm hungry. Uh, sort of, you know, base needs. But what I thought was really cool and neat in my accidental goofing around experiment was that you can sort of very quickly develop in a three-year-old, apparently, this kind of sense of a of a wider and cooler wor- world. Because I personally think it would be a lot cooler if you had pet dinosaurs that went to space every once in a while. That would make things maybe a bit more interesting. Um, so then I started thinking specifically about, uh, you know, some myths that we have, you know, telling telling kids stories, you know, telling Gus um, when we walk past a spooky house in our neighborhood, telling him a ghost story about it and just completely making it up off the top of my head, creating our own mythologies and, you know, also cribbing from other mythologies, things like Santa Claus and, uh, and the Easter Bunny. It's so funny. I heard a right-wing pundit on Fox News, which don't ask me why I was listening to that, but I, I happened, it happened to be on, we'll say that, right? And I don't, I don't even know what they were talking about, but this guy was talking about how his mother uh, had told him about Santa Claus when he was a kid, and he said, you know, I just never forgave her because she lied to me. And I said, oh my goodness, what an awful existence that is, right? That you're I don't know how serious you are or not, but if, if it's true, you're harboring some sort of bitterness for your parents lying to you. And that's not the point at all. I think that these myths that we have, whether it's Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy or any of these kind of, um, you know, these these spirits or archetypes that come to visit children, um, it's not a lie. I mean, there's there's no there's no value in a parent uh, and I mean value in the crass sense. There's no value in a parent telling a kid that all those presents under the tree are from Santa Claus, right? Because, you know, the parent could take the credit and be the, like the awesome mom or dad who bought all this cool stuff. But you tell a story very specifically to instill a sense of wonder that there is a magical being who takes, you know, your teeth from under your pillow at night and leaves you money for some reason. Never really looked into the origins of that one. But... um that's a long way around of, of saying that I think that if you can create in a in a kid a sense of the world kind of being bigger, not through a, a, the screen of a television or a phone, but through story and through their own imaginations, I have to imagine that that translates into, you know, when, when they get older, 
if they don't think that you're a liar and hold some kind of bitterness against you for it, that translates into a just a bigger, you know, engagement with the world, right? And the ability to create their own stories from a practical problem-solving perspective or just to make life more grand. Okay. Well, look, there was a lot there, and I, I, there, I, I've... <laughs> It triggered some things that I've just, I, I'm going to have to uh, get Let's off go. my chest here. Um, Do it. <laughs> first of all, I, I just, when you said that, that Fox News just happened to be on, I flash back to my hospital orderly days. And anyone who has had any experience with hospitals, particularly ER wards or uh, trauma medicine, the humorous side of trauma medicine, knows there is the, the, Healthcare workers just wait with bated breath for those incidents where someone has some sort of rectal insertion that has gone uh, troublesome. <laughs> and always, you know, I just happened to sit on the carrot, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, that golf club was just on the couch, you know. And there's always some fabulously inept excuse for why something got up somebody's butt. You know, it's yeah. just a, a classic category of storytelling mishap. Um, the other thing that I thought of that, that you, I hadn't thought of this in a long time, but uh, when I was doing my grad school work ages and ages ago at UW in Seattle, I was also, I was teaching that as part of my fellowship. And uh, the students weren't that much younger than I was then. And um, my first class 26 students each was standard. I swear to God, I had 20 chicks and mm -hmm. at least 15 of them were, if not scorching, on the definite hot spectrum. And there were right. a couple of scorchers. And there was, and it was a very, very interracial class, very mixed, very different backgrounds. Well, one of the whitest chicks in the group, Amber, from some uh, suburb of San Diego, Amber did look hot. She was just your hot white cheerleader, but she had about uh, a half of 10% of a normal functioning brain. Sweet, sweet gal. <laughs> but right. she, I did try to get them reading material, you know, in class, get them some poise, get them, you know, confident in their own voices. And in this absolutely sensational outfit, still with her summer tan in Seattle rain when everyone was starting to get depressed, she stood up and proudly read one of the most emotionally retarded pieces I've ever heard <laughs> about the complete psychotic episode she went into when she realized that the tooth fairy wasn't real. Oh dear. And, oh, no. but the beautiful thing was there, I mean, the reaction was simply phenomenal because mm -hmm. one of the other truly hot chicks just could not contain her laughter, her just complete yeah. disbelief. And she literally wet her pants in class, <laughs> which prompted a third, an, another one of the hot chicks 
to start laughing so hard she tipped over in her desk and mm-hmm. and hit the floor badly so it was a chain reaction of just absolute shock and disbelief at amber's yeah. loss of innocence about uh the tooth fairy but here's the thing about uh you know this shared world with your niece and it, it i think this is a really important way of, of seeing imagination in very practical terms particularly from a, a child's point of view before they're really articulate enough to to think about it themselves my uh my father had these crazy uh, clients, patients, you know, when he was a psychologist, and they had a huge influence on me. And I, there, are, there are many that that I I have stories to tell about. But one was an older couple, and these people were really serious old time carnival vaudevillian stage magic people, and they had. Uh, a kind of um, mentalist act worked out between them. Of course, it was code-based. Of course, it was. But it was very difficult to break, very difficult to see what was going on. It, and it, was, it was subtle. And they worked hard to teach me that as a kid, way before I could really... Un- but I got onto it because they were such crazy, wonderful characters. And intuitively, I knew that the world was not filled with people like them, that they were, I didn't think of it exactly like they were dwindling away and there weren't going to be people like that ever again. But I kind of did. I kind of did. I knew it was something special. And being taken into that world of, of, of them sharing that code with me, I mean, we had a bond. And I think that's what we, I think that's from a very early age, what we mean by imagination to some extent. We mean a kind of play. We mean a kind of game Mm -hmm. that you can enter into and you don't have to explain it. You know, Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. pick up on it and they, they start to make inferences, which is a real sign of intelligence, you know, speculative inferences and they build on it, you know, Mm -hmm. and, Remember, we've said that, you know, the, the, the way you demonstrate that you understand a code is not by decoding a message. It's by sending a message back within that code. So your niece right. did that. She performed that, you know, and this is another thing that we focused on is not just an explanation, but a, a performance in kind. Well, where are your dinosaurs? Well, they're, they're off to the moon. So she picked up on it. So the game goes on. So mm-hmm. now you've got, now it's back to you, David, you know, the ball's in your court. It is a game of catch and you keep building yep. and your world building together. And yes. that's one of the best experiences you could ever have. Yes, exactly. Because I, again, I think that that collaborative game will instill within the child going forward, a sense of play when they approach certain things. You know, uh, kids from the age of two to seven, based on my research, they're in what's called the uh, pre-operational phase, which means that they are pre-logical. It means that they're intuitive, right? That they're that they're kind of like learning how to uh, both communicate, kind of symbolically, and and make um, sort of frameworks and accommodations for those frameworks. So. Within that uh, sense, I, when I was reading that, I was like, oh, but does that mean, you know, when they hit seven, 
that mean they start getting, you know, logic into the mix? And don't get me wrong, logic is very important. But I think that when we're talking about our societal goals, I think logic can be much more, much more based towards kind of getting to those goals. Let's say the goal is a big house with a nice car, right? But what are the kind of logical steps? You can't, uh, you know, you, you can't send your dinosaurs to the moon and have them bring you back a house and a car. You have to be able to put together, well, okay, so in order to do this, you're going to need money. How are you going to get money? Well, you need a job, so how do you get a job? And then on down the chain, and, you know, about that time, seven or eight, you're in, what is that, second, third grade, something like that? No, a little, you're, yeah, third grade, yeah. Is, yeah, third grade, okay. Second and third grade, you're, no, you're, you're right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, at that point, you know, you are kind of getting out of the kind of kindergarten, first grade, let's all sit in a circle and sing songs and have the teacher read us stories. By the way, I want to make this abundantly clear. Uh, my mother, uh, right now she teaches special needs kids, but she has taught all of these grades, and I'm in no way denigrating what those people do, because holy cow, that's a big responsibility. Oh, it's huge. But I'm saying, it's huge. Yeah. But I'm saying in um, kind of almost in the negative, right, that when you get to, to third, kind of third, fourth, maybe fifth and on, there's not a clear demarcation between elementary and middle and, and high school with, with this, what I'm about to say. But you start to kind of get into the more kind of rigorous, like we're going to sit in our seats and you're going to memorize, you know, what a noun is and what a verb is. And again, we can go back and forth kind of about the value of those things because we both agree it's important to know what nouns and verbs are for starters. But, you know, you get a bit more rigorous and you get a bit more into the the logical side of things. And I just think that what that means is that from where Gus is now, going up to about seven, and of course I'll continue on past that, but up to about seven, I really want to instill a value of using your imagination and using nonlinear thought and being able to come up with imaginative scenarios and playful fun games like you said that you don't really have to explain too heavily to to other kids because i because i think that there's plenty of life and plenty of time to get that more logical side and uh the world will have no shortage of people ready to explain at length how to how to do that well, you know, the problem that I see is is really that uh, we, we've talked about what Gilbert Riles calls uh, category mistakes. And I think mm -hmm. that the word logic really comes in for some serious category blurring because most people use that word in a, in a very, very uh degenerative way they're they're not really clear what they mean by it mm -hmm. uh and it's too far removed from logic as a formal discipline which really is something that is worth studying uh and has some real formal parameters to it and what we mean by it in commonplace speech is really it translates to uh explanation to exposition you know you you must do you know in order to do this in it, it, it it appears to be useful in terms of breaking things down into sequences, you know, component parts, but it's the exact opposite of holism, of, of the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. It works in many ways, but it doesn't get 
the creative energy of, of things assembled, things built, things grown in an organic sense. And mm-hmm. it seems to me that people would do a lot better to pay attention to what children's natural logics are and work mm-hmm. with those and, and let those evolve. I mean, for instance, I was thinking of a, of a skill that, that no one taught us growing up. Uh, we had the benefit uh, then of, of spending a lot of time with each other outside of adult frames we met every morning for touch football before school. You could just, in those days, it seemed like you could walk out your door and, and just be in radar contact with, you know, another bunch of kids and things, games would form and there was no plans. There was, we've right. talked about this yeah. with the, the, the cell phone thing of texting and stuff. We were on some sort of, you know, internet of our own and it was just all intuitive um, and obviously there were, you know, neighborhood factors, social factors, economic factors. There were reasons why, you know, kids, you know, all lived, you know, near each other. I'm not saying that there weren't practical reasons for that. But I, it occurred to me that, you know, in the early uh, experience of sports, uh, we were always very conscious of who was on our team at any given time without any uniforms you know, and the teams changed all the time. And if you think about that, I mean, later when we when we got a little bit older, maybe in basketball, there would be shirts and skins. But we weren't doing that, you know, at seven through 11. You know, it, it just mm-hmm. and 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 certainly we weren't doing it when we were you know playing tackle football in the mud, which was great fun. But think of that ability to remember at any given point who's on your team when yesterday the teams were totally different. Now that's a lot of interesting information processing and a kind of logic that children come by naturally. So if we support those natural frameworks of thinking, which could all fit under the rubric of of what we're calling imagination, um, that's the way to keep that in place. We, we lose that when we, I think, try to feed kids information and processes that they're not really ready for yet, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And I, it kind of makes me think of your subject of um, kind of the neutering of young, uh, younger boys recently. The talk that you're doing of, you know, kind of shirts and skins and touch football moving into tackle football and the logic of knowing who's on your team, even though that they were different people uh, yesterday. Uh, and also this idea of, you know, Amber learning that the tooth fairy wasn't, wasn't real. You know, I think that that happens with some kids younger and younger and younger. And it's kind of this odd spiritual neutering. I'll I'll never forget this because at the time I thought it was the dumbest thing that I'd ever heard. But when I found out that Santa Claus was not real, I confronted my mother about it. And I said, Mom, look, level with me. It's not it's not real. Right. I'm not going to say how old I was because I was older than I should have been. I held on to the dream a bit longer than than most, maybe. But you hear about it on the bus. You hear about it on the bus and, and you're, you're like, no, no, that can't be true. No, that's that's a lie. But I got to thinking about it. The the worm got into my brain and I, I had to just, you know, tell my mom, come clean with me. Tell me what's going on here. I'll never forget. She said, well, Santa Claus is real in your heart. 
And at the time, I went to my room, and I thought, like, that is such bullshit. Now, of course, a bit later, in hindsight, I actually think that's was really kind of astute and uh, is probably more true than I was giving it credit for. But all that is to say, right, there are kids who are, you know, three years old. They, they, they barely know how to talk, right? And they're already being told, you know, these things aren't real. Uh, Santa Claus isn't real. The Tooth Fairy isn't real. I'm going to leave you money under your pillow uh, just because, because it's a fun thing we can do and money is good. So I'm wondering if there's kind of just not a, uh, maybe not a direct connection, but those things kind of float like the, in, in, in my mind, there's this sort of connection between, you know, making it so that, uh, boys perhaps stay inside and look at screens and are kind of, you know, fed content instead of being outside and playing with each other. And also the, the kind of cutting off of the imaginative apparatus uh, outside of intellectual property owned by the Disney Corporation from a young age. Yeah, you know, I, I the thing that really disturbs me, and we talked about last time of, of you know, everything is kind of uh, our one scale you know, that that's worth uh, paying attention to because it's kind of unavoidable is, is the very local. And I, I look around my neighborhood and I know there's a ton of kids here of, of quite a, quite an age range. I mean, I, I've got evidence of that. And yet you rarely see kids out doing, and many people my age, you know, say this all the time. They're just not out, uh, you know, getting scraped knees, falling out of trees, jumping off roofs, uh, you know, bike riding around. I mean, my stepbrother and I at a very early age were uh, riding bikes across a major Bay Area freeway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that is not a good, I'm not supporting that. <laughs> I, I don't think that's a good thing. But I got to tell you, on a foggy night, you had to cross four lanes and shoot this off ramp that was like a corkscrew. I mean, it was hairy. The The speed limit for cars got down to 15 miles an hour. So, you know, that's a pretty tight corner. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing more exciting than that. And the idea that totally. someone would tell us to not do that, it was like, well, you know, f- forget that. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's just not going to happen. You know, the rush is too good. And I, I think that, Part of, uh, I mean, one of the problems with the idea of supporting imagination, and I think you're going to find this out very definitely uh, as a parent, is that you're kind of in in part supporting a certain level of uh, rebelliousness, you know? Totally. Yep. Yep. That reminds me very much of when uh, my brother and I would play the floor is lava in our house. We would make these elaborate obstacle courses from one room to the next so that we didn't have to touch the floor. And uh, one of those things was uh, upturned laundry baskets. You know, we there would you go. kind of dump the laundry basket out and much to my mother's chagrin, we would, you know, kind of jump from basket to basket. And she told me over and over again, you know, stop doing that because you're going to break the basket, right? Well, what did I do? Okay, so I decided now I'm going to jump <laughs> from the top of the dresser onto the laundry basket, right? So I did, and it was a very, it was an incredibly successful jump. Some may say too successful, right? Because I landed dead center 
in that upturned laundry basket broke through it and somehow the way that it broke it created this incredible sharp angle that, that became embedded in my leg so i st- <laughs> i stand up with the laundry basket kind of in my leg right blood just going everywhere and i go out and i'm i'm screaming you know i'm screaming and mom kind of you know she took it out and she cleaned me up in the bathtub um because the i mean the wound wasn't as as bad as it as it looked at first i guess it was just kind of it was just kind of scary but you know i'm in there and i'm you know you know doing all this kind of stuff and my mother who is one of the sweetest people um my wife describes her as a light right because she's just endlessly sunny and positive she looked me in the eye and she said shut up i told you not to do this and now look at what happened and that was very irregular for her right (laughs) right but i get but you know i mean she was budding i was the firstborn kid right so she's butting up against this budding uh rebelliousness as you said and i have to imagine that is uh going to be i'm not going to pretend like it's not going to happen to me but i'm just going to say that is going to be very very frustrating you know chris don't whatever you do don't ride across four lanes of freeway and take that corkscrew exit yeah sure okay yeah whatever you say I, i definitely won't do that wink wink well, you know, I think for me it started with uh, there was a phrase that my mother would use uh, at the table, uh, you know, and I mean, let's face it, getting kids to to eat, to actually eat for themselves and to manage the whole bathroom function, that's a large part of the challenge, right? Yeah, uh, right. it really is. It, 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 it It's unfortunately, you know, it. It's just got to be done. <laughs> you got to get those mm-hmm. levels of competence happening. But she would always say this line that just used to drive me completely nuts. She'd say, please put that glass back on the table. You know, meaning that I was about to spill it or there was, you know, some sort of disaster that was, you know, going to happen. And uh, I don't think the solution is, by the way, to getting everything plastic uh, that that's a problem. Particularly, I know some people who they've never gotten away from plastic dish. Everything's still plastic. Their their yeah. their kids are grown and they're just still you know something could break. You know, sippy cups. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's really uh, so. I mean, I think that reinforces the Bergson position of you know negation is just not a good training uh, strategy. It's just it not yeah. for anyone, but certainly not for the, the imaginative kids. Uh, hit us up with another uh, a value as opposed to a goal that you had written. Sure. Because you've got a lot of them. I do have a lot of them, yeah. I guess we should probably get moving up. <laughs> uh, well, okay. So the ne- you mentioned this briefly, actually, but a, a kind of connection to nature, I mm-hmm. think, is really important. And that goes from everything to just the kind of simple we're going to get out of the house, out of your room, and we're going to just kind of walk around the neighborhood to some pretty intense camping. I would like to get into, you know, teaching how to build a fire. Um, this is probably where I would use some apps because I have a really cool app on my phone right now that I can take a picture of any plant and it will tell me what the plant is called 
and and kind of some cool facts about the plant. And I have to assume that there are those for birds and animals and bugs as well. Um, so getting out and sort of learning the names of birds and plants and kind of learning some kind of basic Boy Scout uh, outdoor camping and survival aspects, I think, are, are pretty important. Just as a kind of, um, you know, from a practical standpoint, getting out in the sun, I think that it's I think that it's healthier. I have absolutely no scientific backing to 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 put onto this, but I have to assume that kids who spend time in nature are on balance healthier than kids who do not. Um, but also, I think that having an appreciation for nature and having an appreciation for things kind of as they are um, is counter to a kind of goal that we have in society of always uh, and forever improving things like technology and architecture and cars, um, which I guess are a kind of technology, right? But I think that that I think that's the real value, right? That we're that we're looking for is learning to appreciate things uh, as they are, and by extension, being alive. Well, I certainly agree with that, and I think that can be uh, broken down or expanded and blown up further. Uh, I mean, the this is a good example where of of getting outdoors and learning something about nature actually has many, many ancillary benefits. I think self-esteem, physical confidence, a degree of, of physical courage all comes through. I think that when you see this happening in uh, young girls, for instance, I think young boys desperately need it. And we're this is part of the problem. I think that there's kind of a, a phantom sense of, of uh, this is how it used to be, and it's no longer. And I think that's one part of the problem that young men face growing up. But I've seen some examples of where uh, young girls have gotten this training. My entomologist friend, who's one of the great experts on ants you know, in the world, I think I've mentioned him before, uh, his, his daughter is an ornithologist in Borneo and is fighting the good fight against the whole palm oil uh, industry. Oh, and, that is a good fight, genuinely. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you go back in in uh, I mean, there's a lot of scientific stuff in their house, and and he's a big, uh, very very he's a connoisseur of of beautiful scientific illustrations, you know, from the 19th century, uh, Gould and Audubon, and some of these beautiful works of of scientific uh, diagramming and uh, presentation that are absolutely works of art. But in the midst mm-hmm. of that, there's all of these family photos from the past. And when his daughter was a little girl, she's always covered in mud or in boots or she's got a butterfly net or she's looking at pond scum or, you know, she's collecting fireflies or something. But this constant connection with the natural world and as a result of that, she's an enormously confident woman, uh, a great sense of, of, of self-esteem, but also balance. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, she's a mm-hmm. very, very collaborative scientist. Uh, all of those social skills came out of the puddle work and and going out to in the backyard to watch the stars, you know, yes. Very basic things. So there's a lot going on with that. And I, I think this is a, a, 
another way perhaps to reflect on and dissect the difference between values and goals because they often are you know very closely related or should be the difference the problem with goals is they're often so damn specific they're so limited they're so focused on where well, we're going to do x so we can have y whereas mm-hmm. actually you do x for a whole bunch of reasons because you are teaching things like confidence and like it's okay to fall down and well maybe if you hurt your knee maybe you can you know learn how to bandage it you know that's a good practical yeah. skill um maybe you can feel confident when you don't know something and when you you know you come upon some uh bug that you've never seen before or you hear a word that you you've never heard before maybe you're not afraid of everything in the world which yes i mean this is so much and you'll see this more and more with with the kids around you as, as, as Gus grows up, there's a lot of kids who are damn scared of everything. And it's after a certain age, I think it's pretty early too. I mean, people like Piaget and, and, you know, they, they've said that it's, it's the cutoff points, you know, probably like seven years old. And after that, it's very difficult. You know, mm-hmm. you start seeing these people who, well, where do they get their phobias as children, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things uh, that I have written here that kind of relates to your friend's ornithologist daughter is the value of commitment um, to both projects and people. Um, something that I've noticed in uh, millennial modern American uh, and Western European discourse is how quickly people will kind of turn on each other as soon as they sense danger and also how quickly people will give up on uh, projects that they're that they're working on and i think that both of those have the same root problem which is a lack of a value of commitment and a focus rather on goals. You know, if you aren't necessarily committed to a friend and that friend gets in trouble on Twitter, uh, that might get in the way of your goal of, oh, I don't know, professional advancement or whatever. Convert Also, not conversely, but also, if you are working on a project and it's not... Uh, a monetary success, <clears throat> a lot of people will quit because that's getting in the way of their goal of having, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, a house or a car or what have you. But I personally think that there should be, if not a kind of uh, patriotism to your country, patriotism to your country is, is too vague for me, but I think a commitment to your close family members and a commitment to your friends and a commitment to finish the things that you start, I think that will give Gus something approaching a superpower in the next 20 to 30 years and beyond. Well... Uh, you don't need to convince me. I, I think that's yeah. absolutely right. I think that, that that what you're talking about to me in my terms is is part of a deep social grammar uh, that 
we're losing. Uh, the structure is breaking down. And I think the people who uh, resist that and who uh, really demonstrate very positive sense of, of structure and commitment in that sense uh, really have a solidity of, of character and also a flexibility of character that their peers who lack commitment won't have. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and they'll just simply, it, it's also kind of pure endurance and, and uh, persistence and intestinal fortitude and all of the things that you need to look to uh, in difficult times. And, and, and those are mm -hmm. inevitable. Those are inevitable right. at any phase in life. And there's no point in looking at other people's situation and going, well, you know, they have it easier. Uh, that doesn't change your situation. You know, you've got to respond to, to what's on, on your path. And, and we, we all have to learn that, uh, you know, pretty early in the game. Um, even before, you know, we really get on top of language. I think we start thinking, hmm, you know, what's working, what's not? Uh, you know, am I getting attention when I scream this way? Uh, <laughs> you know, what happens when I do this? Um, the whole thing is, is just, you know, immensely complicated and happening uh, at, at a kind of astonishing rate. And it can't be photographed. It can't be videotaped. It's happening way too fast for that, you know? Right. Right. Well, as we wrap up this first part, I'm just going to run down uh, these kind of last three that I have here, and we can perhaps pick them up uh, next time. I had um, the a value of constructive uh, argument, right, of, of interacting with things in a combative way might be a better way of putting it. Like productive combat, essentially, you know, not... Uh, being a, a group or a person that keels over quickly, but also not one that intends to dominate everything around. So I think we can kind of find a, a good analogy for that in a good old fashioned kind of dinner table uh, debate. Uh, I had an example lined up here that I can go into next time of the Wright brothers and how they were kind of raised to be argumentative. Um, then there are two questions or two two values here that are a little sticky and one of them is religion slash spirituality how to approach something like that because i personally do think that it's very important whether it's a value of you know christianity buddhism Hindu, like whatever the major world religions or a kind of sense of uh, of animist uh, perhaps magical spirituality and that flows directly into questions of moral uh, conviction and morality in general, which I think are um, more difficult than the ones that I brought up. I kind of started with the easy ones and left those other ones for later. So I don't know if, like, off the top of your head, if you wanted to, to add anything to this list that I had of values um, or maybe take issue with any of them before we before we go. I wouldn't take issue with them so much as I, I think that they need to be uh, really uh, not more clearly defined, but but put into mm -hmm. more practical frames of, of where we mm -hmm. can see them and examine them. And also to look at ways of uh, the question of how you inculcate them. You know, I, I think it's mm -hmm. one thing okay. to have a value, but but, you know, this is the difference between the explicit and straightforward 
uh, practice of goals, of how those get taught, which is often too linear. And that's where that linear thinking comes, where we know what we said with imagination is that it, that it's a spiral process. It's breaking, it's dimensionalizing linear thought. It's breaking up those static patterns. So getting to uh, the idea of how some of these more, uh, I don't know if they are more complicated, really, the values than goals. I think the, the difference is, is how you actually instill them. I think those require more magical uh, labyrinth-like uh, plots that are kind of oblique in, in the teaching mechanisms. And they, they, you know, that's why some of the Zen training seems so oblique. You know, it, it's beautiful. It's, it's so oblique. You wonder, you know, what, what the, what is the straightforward goal here? Well, you've already missed the whole Zen concept, you know, and uh, it, it, uh, there's some interesting things going there, but I do have a couple of things to close on. Uh, I, I, I think it's worth, um, well, I've mentioned the Solomon Islands and how, uh, and, and, and New Guinea and how much that, uh, affected my thinking. But when I, the first time I went, uh, walkabout, so to speak, uh, I was, you know, with these village people and I, I needed some, I needed guidance, as we say. I, I truly did, as, I, as in a guide, you know. And uh, they, uh, they sent me off with a 14-year-old boy, you know, who was just in gym shorts, no shirt, no shoes. He didn't have anything. He didn't have any water. Yeah. He, didn't, I, he might have had a knife. Um, right. And I, I was a little stunned. And there happened to be a, a, visit, a visiting medico who was a, a French dude who I'd occasionally see from time to time. And uh, he looked at me and he said, don't worry, uh, the kid's 40,000 years old. You know, and I That's thought, cool. oh, wow. That's and cool. and that, that absolutely uh, proved to, to be true. Uh, my second point um, is a little bit of a reading suggestion. I don't really expect people will will check this out before next week, but it is worth thinking about, and it's something that I I, I do paired readings of things, and and often paired readings of of works that we've kind of put aside or moved beyond as adults. But I think two very interesting looks at the darker sides of children and childhood. And how, as adults, we're processing and looking at this. And I think it, it, it speaks to our educational system, and I think it speaks to parenthood. Two very related, but I think totally different works are Lord of the Flies, which I think many people would be familiar with. But A High Wind in Jamaica, uh, which came out before Lord of the Flies, and is, in my view, I'll just say, I think a far superior book. I think it's much more complex. I think it, it takes some very subtle positions about the nature of, of childhood, mental health, evil, uh, crime and trauma. It, it's a very, very interesting contrast to read those two books. And I've done that with uh, both in formal classrooms and, and in, in just more workshoppy kinds of things. And people get what what is going on there. There's something very, very interesting about the contrast because a high wind in Jamaica is the much more uh, difficult, uh, interesting, and I think adult 
uh, way of, of, of examining the childhood experience. But uh, David, I, I, I want to uh, close out with a challenge for you for next time to, uh, okay. to kick us off with, because I think this cool. is a, uh, this is an interesting debate that I uh, that comes up often. Um, it may be something that you've talked about uh, with with friends and 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 peer group neighbors, but it's it's a very practical question. Uh, it's a societal policy question. Should should people be required to get some kind of license to become parents? You know, interesting. I think okay. that's a hot button social topic, but I think it yes. goes back over some of these deeper issues of values and goals. I think it mm-hmm. speaks to uh, questions of, of the difference of parenting across cultures. Obviously, parenting is a universal human thing. There are 7.8 billion of us here on the planet, but certainly the protocols uh, of parenthood are not the same. The expectations are not the same. Uh, should people, I mean, we have to get a license to drive a car, to run a small mm-hmm. business, to own a gun, uh, to do a lot of things. Why do people just feel like they can breed, which might have any number of implications for 50 or 100 more years? You know, it's a big deal. It's a big act. It is. Yeah. So, no, What do you I, think about like that, that as a starting point for, for our next part one episode? I think that's great. No, I would love to start with that. I think that's awesome. Um, I, I want to just clarify something real quick. You mentioned guns uh, in Oklahoma. You you don't need a, a license to, uh, to even conceal carry a gun. But hey, it's the Wild West. Um, <laughs> really, you don't need any license at all because even in Nevada, no. you need a license. Yeah. No, sure. But no. you know what I mean. I, I think that I know the, what you mean. The, yeah, the, I'm just the, being silly. Yeah, the the, the process of, of some kind of approval, and I yeah. point out that that there there that really is some logic and and realism to that question because certainly people who are pursuing adoption or who want to be foster parents or you know there are uh, hoops that people have to jump through, uh, mm-hmm. and yet. The, the, you know, parenthood in the sense of, of giving birth to a child, that doesn't seem, you know, that's just free to air. Anyone, anyone yeah. who's physically capable of it can do it. Um, so that's a yeah. good I think to, I think, look at. I mean, there are obviously some practical problems with that, but it might be fun just to start with the idea of, well, what if we said, yes, there should be a licensing process? What would be we could kind of reverse engineer it and say, okay, well, what would be the 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 uh, the boxes that would need to be ticked in order to get mm-hmm. that, and what does that reveal then about societal goals versus values? You know, mm, I like it. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start, um, folks. We are going to switch it over here to our part two. Uh, the Patreon exclusive. If you want to subscribe to our Patreon, it is over at uh, patreon.com slash nocountrypodcast. The link will be in the show notes where Chris and I have divided these episodes up into uh, the first half being a kind of diagnosis of things that are 
problems that we have within our uh, society and culture. And uh, in part two, we are looking at ways in which we can sort of provide maybe some practical answers to those problems, which the two, and I knew this was going to happen, but the two are beginning to sort of bleed into each other. So Chris and I will maintain a uh, commitment to making sure that the part one free to air uh, maintains a kind of uh, coherence and, and through line so that you can listen to it so that you don't necessarily, you won't be completely lost if you're not a Patreon subscriber, but the listening experience we both think will be kind of greatly enhanced and uh, developed by, uh, by heading on over to the paywall side. Is there anything you wanted to add to that, Chris? Cool. Well, there are a lot of incentives to to jump over the paywall, and one which we uh, I will remind people of of right now is that we're we're running a contest. We we've been talking about the uh, the tarot card deck and its use as a kind of magical technology uh, and a psychological technology. Many many you know great thinkers and artists have have really drawn a lot of inspiration from the tarot. Uh, we have a competition on where uh, our subscribers uh, have the opportunity to enter a competition to win one of their choice of one of two really cool books, very cool books, which I will uh, remind our subscribers about in the next segment. But they're worth having. They're expensive, interesting books, two different choices. Uh, but the challenge is to come up with a new tarot card that you invent, something that could be added to the major arcana of 22 cards, uh, something that speaks to contemporary culture and obsessions, uh, lots of interesting choices. I might throw out as an example, for instance, the talk show host. Uh, I think that's a very interesting contemporaneous kind of uh, figure to enter the, the major arcana. But there really is a cool competition there. These, the, the choice of books is, is something that we know will interest uh, listeners and they're books of real quality and value. But you only get to enter the competition if you become a subscriber. And there are many, many other reasons to do. We've got a lot of added value as they say kicked in mm -hmm. excellent yeah so is, there uh, so there perfect well hey everybody thanks so much for listening to this first part of uh, no country and for our subscribers we'll see you uh, on the other side hey everybody welcome to the second half the patreon subscriber half of no country my name is still j david osborne and that i believe is still chris sacknesson it is. It is. There have only been, uh, you know, difficult to observe quantum changes. Uh -huh. uh, but I, I suspect, yeah, there's probably been quite a bit of action at levels that I'm not entirely aware of and maybe don't <laughs> want to know about. Maybe, maybe not. It might be cool. I mean, I'm not really sure. It really depends. I think about parallel timelines and, and quantum change all the time. It leads to a bit of an anxiety disorder that I've been combating for most of my adult <laughs> life. Um, but you know, it's, you know, you just got to try to make it fun, I guess, you know, when you truly believe that the past can change and that, um, 
you know, that quantum collapse is happening at all times and that you could potentially derail from the timeline that you're in and become transposed into another one with an all new past and a much more frightening future. Uh, it keeps you up at night, right? But it's best not to think about those things, I suppose. Not too directly anyway. Let them creep in mm-hmm. from the, the corners of the room and, you know, out of the corner of your eye. You, you don't want to look too closely down down that mall. Yeah, that, fright, that, that awful, awful abyss that likes to stare back. But uh, I'll tell you what I was doing just only moments ago. Oh, dear. Um, I, I was laughing very hard uh, because I, I got into this recording experiment of, of we'd been talking about in the, the last uh, part two episode about the idea of uh, the hieroglyphic silence as William Burroughs mentions. And I did, I have all of William Burroughs recorded work uh, to hand. And I, I just enjoy listening to his delivery. I think he's one of the greatest uh, performative readers of, of his own work or anyone's. His, his voice is just, you know, one of those great voices. And uh, I would remind uh, subscribers that, that coming up, we do have uh, some uh, salvaged bits of a very interesting interview I conducted with uh, Dennis Hopper uh, shortly before he was diagnosed, when he was sort of at, really at full strength. And uh, I, I am doing the editing on that. So we mentioned that last time, and I will get around to that. But I was blending some uh, William Burroughs listening with reading some of a work of Charles Darwin's, which he was absolutely devoted to and which almost no one has heard about. Uh, It was kind of a sequel (laughs) to uh, On the Origin of Species, and it was something he was deeply committed to. And I love the title, The Formation of Vegetable Mold, through the action of kind of like black metal almost and it is an oh it isn't it though i think that's a great way to, i hadn't thought of it it's yeah and it is so insane to read how completely focused he is on topic uh it, it's just this is what you know this great luminous figure of the 19th century who still has so much to say about really so many, many different aspects of not just science, but but much uh, more colloquial living. Um, but I did just find in that research, I did find uh, an interesting character who doesn't really fit into any of our discussions exactly, but another person to add to the pantheon of, of uh, sort of Fortrian uh, out of left field heroes, a guy named John Edmonston, Edmund Stone is really, I think, how it should be said. He was a black enslaved man, probably born in British Guiana in South America, who later earned his freedom and also became an absolute master artist of taxidermy. He learned taxidermy from Charles Waterton, who may be one of the great eccentrics of all time. Uh, David and I referred to, mm-hmm. to Waterton in an earlier 
uh, episode with his uh, very lateral, yes. <laughs> imaginative approaches to taxidermy of of monsters and strange creatures and the famous Nunsuch, uh, way, way out there. These are some very interesting people. But John Edmonston uh, had a, a very important impact on Charles Darwin, inspiring him to visit in person uh, tropical rainforests in South America. And he was one of the, uh, a key influence at least, in Darwin's voyage of the Beagle, um, which we had earlier talked about in an episode. And I, I think it's it, it ties in with with a lot of our topics very uh, indirectly, but if I make the connection, you'll see it. We don't know where our influences and inspirations come from. We don't know when a thought will get triggered and, and find a need to be uh, fulfilled and expressed and performed in the world. It, it's very hard to work out a, a physics of that, uh, and, and there may not be. There may not be an easy algorithmic sort of process no. to it. But every time you track down anything that interests you, if you start pulling on the threads or if you start picking up pieces, whatever uh, metaphor works better for you, things really do interconnect in an amazing way. And you never know where these paths lead. I mean, sometimes you could just lose hours uh, down rabbit holes on the Internet. We all know that one. But oftentimes, if you let your intuition work magically, I find that that subject areas begin to form in new ways. And I feel like um, the Solomon Islanders we've talked about where they they will dismantle a new earth moving machine and build themselves into it, build their magic, build their local history, build their knowledge into it. And that's when it becomes really workable and practical for them you know yeah it makes me wonder if a good experiment wouldn't be to pick something that you have perhaps more of a passing interest in rather than something you're really obsessed with and to perhaps attempt to do what you're suggesting without the internet i'm saying this for me because i have a new library card and I don't know what the subject is that I would pick, per se, but I do miss the hunt and the search for you know deeper esoteric knowledge of a subject. I think we all got a little spoiled on the internet. I do uh, remember some really great instances of rabbit holing, particularly before social media corralled everyone into this uh, monocultural hellscape that we're all stuck in right now but i also remember going to the university of oklahoma library and being able to use their database to look up books to research uh different different papers right and um there was one paper that i was writing that was about the um the colorado river and it's uh how it was diverted from Baja, California, so that uh, we could have places like L.A. And, um, and Vegas. And Vegas, as a matter you of know, fact, yes. I, I, I'm at the hub of it, Hoover Dam, you yep, know? Yep, And so that led me to William Volman's thousand-page epic called Imperial, 
which was really great. Yes. But the OU library also had microfiche with old newspaper articles and, you know, correspondences between key figures in this big water deal, right? And I just really got into the like the detective work of piecing together something that's ultimately a pretty banal story of just plain human greed. There's not much more to it. You know, there was money to be made and money was made. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is that I miss the action of doing that, of like hunting for, 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 for answers in a library. So I wonder if there wouldn't be some kind of value in that, some practical value. Um, I really like what, what you've been saying here. And, uh, maybe I will, uh, I'm not going to do this, but, but like look up my equivalent of the, you know, the effect of worms on, on mold. I think that, you know, the, the most uh, presumptuous thing that we can ever do uh, is to assert with some sort of unconditional certainty what's interesting as a topic. What's, what's interesting? What deserves a frame and focus, you know? It really, uh, one of the, uh, and this isn't my practical solution or practical tip for this episode. I'll bring that up uh, near the end. But one of the things that I do recommend in my uh, textbook on creative writing and, and uh, boosting the imagination, it, it, it will sound silly to many people, but uh, I, I seriously recommend taking photographs of what are presumably extremely mundane objects. I'm looking at my stapler on, on my desk. Uh, now, why do I suggest, because students always go, well, why, why would you do that? <laughs> because it makes you ask the question, well, why is it a mundane, is it really a mundane object? Does it change when your focus is directed at it? I mean, William James was was a big one on this, and I think a lot of, you know, I mean, this is one of the key things in 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 what we think of the Eastern wisdom traditions. Purely by our attention, do things change? I mean, this is a basic uh, truth that we've learned from from quantum mechanics. Uh, it, it really, the frame of focus and reference changes the nature of the object, and if you approach anything with curiosity and an open heart, so to speak, there's a lifetime of study in it. You know, there really is. Uh, mm -hmm. A single square oh, yeah. foot of, of basic, so-called basic earth, you know, out in the city park or your backyard. I mean, for starters, there's more life in that than you can possibly conceive, usually. Um, so, no, I mean, I think that really it's about having a completely open porous mind to to what is worth one's attention you know yeah yeah i remember um in math class i think in the eighth grade there was always a stable remover that was sitting kind of on the the counter the bookshelf right next to my desk I remember uh just kind of looking at that and opening and closing the teeth of the staple remover and uh that probably had a lot to do with how much I was drinking and smoking in the 10th grade. But um, the strange things that stick with you. There's also a kid in that class who we used to staple each other's arms. 
uh, when we were bored. Like we would hit each other with staplers. So anyway, lots of uh, yeah, lots of non-mundane things happen, or maybe hyper-mundane things happening in that classroom. But Chris, uh, <laughs> I just uh, keep telling stories. I'm not sure why. But um, what would you like to talk about today? Staplers, maybe we could keep talking about those. Well. Well, you know, I, I would say about staple removers that it's very difficult for me to, to, to think of them, even just in the abstract, and not think of front-fanged yeah, snakes, uh, venomous right? snakes, mm-hmm. uh, you know? And I, when, I, when I was, you know, in, our, in part one, we've been talking about uh, the, the childhood experience and, and the nature of the imagination and mysterious personal systems of magic, which I think will also... Uh, get to again yes. in, in this segment, but you know I used to look at scissors and I would see them as a figure on a kind of bicycle. You know, the the, the handles for your fingers would be the two wheels. You know, and I, I think that we see a lot. Our our natural instinct is is to see a a, a sentient, uh, active, dynamic, living world of of possible you know connections and we 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 do that purely in visual terms we look at shapes you know and we there's constantly this sense of of seeing scenes uh you know in in pine uh knots or mm-hmm. stains you know I, I was obsessed by that as a child i had that condition so acutely it was distracting you know um my mother would say, well, that's just some lemonade spilled. And I'd be going, oh, no, there's right. a cyclops there, you know? <laughs> Can't you see it? Um, yep, yep, a young young shaman in training. It's it's always happening. Uh, but to move on to our, our, our topic, I, I think that we are, again, covering some, some uh, very interesting terrain. And we're going to continue to try to articulate what it is we mean by the ghost radio signal and how that uh, is related to the notion of culture with a capital C, but also how we can look at uh, the two uh, paradigm tools that we've mentioned of the crystal radio, uh, which we've uh, kind of generally outlined as as this sense of personal curiosity, experimentalism, home projects, the do-it-yourself attitude, the idea of for kids getting out and, and investigating nature, uh, being involved with the world, giving animist magic and uh, home science equal time. Uh, and then pirate radio is, is we're hoping that what we're doing now is something of an, of a, an example and performance of that in terms of using uh, social skills, using media, using uh, communication skills to, to build community. And last episode, we, we talked about examples from uh, the 19th and early 20th centuries of the Lyceum and Chautauqua movements, uh, which we would like to think of ourselves as being uh, the you know contemporary versions of those traditions of sharing knowledge, hopefully being fun as well, um, but but definitely a knowledge exchange in a, in a building of community. I had one mm-hmm. thought that. Um, that I, I think puts some of our, our, our questions into focus. 
some of the issues uh, that brought us together to start the whole series, we come kind of from maybe as many as seven different angles. But uh, I, I was I was walking around this beautiful wildlife uh, refuge just up the road from me um, the other day before a massive thunderstorm, and it occurred to me that there is a simple way to explain one of our driving uh, inciting questions that we're trying to investigate. Psychic energy. Let's look at that for a moment. If we look at the mm-hmm. just the last hour, say, of global culturally defined time, okay, a standard hour, mm-hmm. and it's amazing that we have that level of, of consensus agreement on what that might even mean. That's a very telling point we should look for agreement david and i are, are trying to focus on positive connections rather than constant points of difference and negations which seems to us to to be a kind of uh real well it's a strategy but it seems more like a disease of our time but in the last hour think about all of the thoughts there are 7.8 billion humans on earth right now uh, and some of them are, are awake. It's interesting, their time zones is another issue I'm going to get to. Think of all the thoughts that have basically been lost. They've been forgotten. They've been they've turned into other. Th- We're not sure exactly what's happened to them. There is no physics. There's no materialist scientist that can tell us what's happened to that energy. We know that it is a kind of energy and therefore it should fall within the framework of the first law of thermodynamics, the conservation of energy. Energy cannot be created or destroyed. Uh, We know that the, the, the laws of thermodynamics, and there are three of them that are really, you know, referred to often by people well outside uh, thermodynamics. And there is a, a risk, a danger in using scientific uh, principles metaphorically. But we do know that psychic energy registers in terms of MRI you know, imagery. We can define that. We know that someone conscious and thinking and thinking about certain things, we know the brain actually changes color and to some extent shape. We can, we can actually measure that. But we don't know what happens to thoughts and memories. The, the, the fact is, so much of human existence hinges on immaterial, invisible, and effectively intangible factors, which are nonetheless terribly important to us. And that mystery, as fundamental to our lives as, as it is, minute to minute, uh, is really what we're, we're, we're trying to investigate. How do we reconcile uh, a society and a global culture fundamentally committed to materialist mechanistic science uh, in terms of what needs to be really a a fundamental metaphysics. You know, I I just don't see any Mm -hmm. way around that. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I, I really, I can't, I don't know how Richard Dawkins really processes that, that question and that problem. He certainly doesn't do it to my satisfaction. And I think I'm not alone in that at all. Um, so that is one way to think about it, just where the psychic energy 
goes. Sometimes it obviously turns into other thoughts. Sometimes it will return in other forms. Yeah, maybe. But a lot of times, no, it just seems to, to disappear. And is that even possible? Can thoughts really disappear? Oh, yeah. This opens up a whole lot of thoughts for me because this is something that I think about often. Rios and I are engaged in a rewatch of the show Breaking Bad, and there's a scene where Walter White, the protagonist, the troubled protagonist of the show, and the kind of drug cartel leader um, whose name is Gus, Gustavo, oddly enough, um, are having a conversation over dinner, and Gus mentions that the the smell of the thing he just cooked reminds him of you know his his mother he says why does that happen uh why do we associate you know smells with memories and uh walter white being the science man gives him some sort of explanation about it's in the hippocampus and you know this that and the other and um when i heard that i was i was kind of like oh man this show is so 10 years ago man like, cause he's, you know, he says, well, you store your memories in your hippocampus. You don't, you don't store memories at all, right? The idea of the human mind is a, a kind of computer with all of its files tucked away somewhere that you can open up a folder and bring those files out is pretty outdated, I think, right now by a lot of, um, of uh, neurologists, you know, um, it reminds me, I'm not sure if we talked about this on the show or not. Have I spoken about Monica Gagliano's Thus Spoke the Plant and the experiments that she did with with plants and plant memory? I think that you've, we, we haven't uh, spent much time on it, but I think you have mentioned it. I, I uh, Yes, but it's certainly relevant to this. Yeah, absolutely. I'll just, I'll go over those briefly then, because if we did mention those, we've been doing the show long enough that it might have been a a year ago. (laughs) So I'll just, I'll bring up this book because I think Thus Spoke the Plant is a book that everybody uh, should read. And she's done some really fascinating work into, um, again, plants. Her her contention is that plants have memories. And she's done an experiment uh, where she had a plant, uh, the name of which I can't recall right now, but that is very shy, that doesn't open for for people and tends to sort of like uh, move back when it's touched. She spent a very long time using a machine that she made uh, that would drip, uh, that she would drip water onto onto the plant. And over time, over something like eight months, eventually the plant kind of opened up to her and allowed her to pour water directly onto its face or petals or whatever you call it on the plant. So part of the experiment then was that she would leave the lab and allow other people to perform this action. And when other people came into the room, the plant would close back up again. And then uh, I believe another eight months went by and Gagliano re-entered the lab and poured the water on the plant and it somehow remembered her and did not close up when she approached. So I can already, you know, hear the gears turning and the explanations of, uh, there's some kind of pheromone that she gives off that the plant recognizes and, you know, describing these incredibly complex, um, almost neurological sounding, uh, things that, that, that a plant would have to go through in order to quote unquote, recognize this person who's, who's dripping water on them. Um, when I think the answer, which is very uncomfortable for many people, is that the plant does remember, but the plant doesn't have a brain. 
So where does the plant, quote unquote, store all those memories? And I think that's exactly what you're talking about here with the psychic energy, right? Where does it go? Where is it when it's not? And I think that the answer to this, in as much as we can have an answer right now, is that memories are more than likely uh, relational. And relational to what is the question? But, you know, what, what brings memories out of the ether or more than likely recreates them? Well, there's so many things going on here which tie into uh, things that we've been talking about really since the start of, of the series. Um, one helpful uh, guiding point here is is one of our heroes, Rupert Sheldrake, who is really uh, looking at this, and he's one of the, the points of view that we're trying to reconcile with, uh, say, a Jungian point of view about the collective unconscious. Yeah. Uh, but Sheldrake's idea of, of uh, morphogenetic fields, that, that, that memory is a kind of habit, uh, a habit built into nature, that nature has an inherent sense of, of memory, and that therefore our notion of memory and memories is, is really quite clunky and uh, very misguided. It's, it's from a different level of, of, of how things work. And one of the problems with, uh, if you do any real research in, into memory studies and the science of memory, uh, for starters, you realize that that we really don't know anything more about the entire topic than we did 2,000 years ago. And I think we, mm -hmm. we've gotten more and more confused there's always this look for a hardwired solution. And, you know, here we have, and we live in a time when we've got a very, uh, you know, very simple metaphor of, is it a USB cable connection or is it Wi-Fi? You know, we've mm -hmm. got the cloud, mm -hmm. you know, we, we've got some some other, and the cloud is, is I mean, we've taken that on board as, as kind of the ghost radio signal, but we know that the skull cage and the octopus in the cage, which is what I call the brain, we know that that's not storing all this stuff. It, it doesn't, no. none of those models work. We have plenty of examples of people with huge railroad spikes driven through their cerebellum with no apparent effect, as, as difficult mm -hmm. as that is to believe. There are many, many examples of this. Meanwhile, we've got uh, memory clinics. I, I went and visited uh, one of the most expensive ones around the corner from me. And I don't know if I mentioned this before, uh, but I certainly have in a couple of, uh, of other situations. The people there are, are not elderly. I mean, there are, there are some elderly people, but there are an awful lot of young people with major, major memory problems. So we've got a problem in terms of how we define memory, how we differentiate it from perception, uh, to what extent we differentiate it from imagination and a creative process rather than just a pure recording uh, process. Um, so many confused, conflicted metaphors and I think it's at least worth, and this is one of our underlying points, of, of asking the question, well, what if the brain were more like a receiver rather than some sort of a factory that's self-contained? What if it was connected to other transmission 
uh, vehicles. And mm-hmm. I, I just don't see any harm in investigating that and trying to, to work out what is a, a effectively a metaphysics rather than a physics. Yes, we accept that. Yep. Um, yep. But yep. some people aren't scared of the term metaphysics or spirituality or the sacred or magic. Um, and for those people who are, well, we'll try to convince them otherwise. Um, but be not afraid. <laughs> right, right. And the whole idea of somebody having a railroad spike through their cerebellum, you know, it, it makes you think about, uh, you know, people, there are some people who have perfect photographic memory, which is also very strange. There are people who get bumped on the head and can suddenly speak French. And I think that that, that is more evidence for a, uh, a kind of radio idea as far as the brain goes receiving signals because um you know if you get bumped on the head hard enough it's like turning the dial or the switch on the radio to the french station and now for some reason i think i heard once of a woman who could speak fluent japanese after getting into a car wreck and she'd never studied japanese before so there's fascinating implications for things like uh language learning you know the idea that it's just a frequency that you have to tune to and language is just available to you there you know it's it really is um something that's worth thinking about right i'd like to be able to speak japanese without putting in ten thousand hours of studying it that would be great but um but yeah, well, it ties into you know our, our you know another one of our heroes, Charles Fort, and in his point of mm-hmm. you know stay open minded, and also I mean if and this is an adage that that even hardcore materialist scientists you know accept if you continue to not get answers to a question, you have to at least consider that you've framed the question incorrectly. Or that it's just simply not applicable. That you've just got something. Your paradigm is wrong. And I think memory is a beautiful uh, example. But it, but it ripples out from that in terms of of language. Uh, I mean, think of all the complexity. And I think with with um, with Gus, you know, changing shape of mind every day, you'll you'll start to really notice this probably in ways that it happened too quickly for you to uh, take note of. But think about how inflection and accent works in language, mm-hmm. the sense of context. You know, we're told we're born with this, you know, kind of a, a preloaded program from the factory with the, ca- the capacity to take on board language. Yeah, but geez, think of the depth of that. I mean, there's an awful lot of stuff going on that changes the whole uh, nature of, of, of meaning and, and the semantics of what, what makes language important. And it, we don't have any yeah. explanation for that. So you start peeling these things back. So we don't have the right idea about memory. We're confused about how memory is distinct from perception in the moment. Do we ever actually perceive in the moment or is it all, is there always a time lag that's inevitable mm. because of the, the mechanics of perception? Do we really have the, uh, an innate capacity for language? If so, does that include all these other things of body language and in- intuition about uh, tone and mood and intent? You know, think about mm-hmm. how, how animals... 
Dogs, I really believe, have a tremendous sense of human nature. You know, if when I, when I, when my dingo was alive, uh, it, it was it was preternatural. It really was. If she had a bad vibe about someone, so did I. <laughs> you know, mm, I, I used right, her as right. a sensory prosthetic, and in in a sense, as a spiritual and moral prosthetic. And there was a very good example of it where. Um, she actually assisted in in the capture of a local rapist who had been impersonating the water meter man. Uh, and I mean, she was absolutely right on the money. And when I did, I did have a run in with him and I um, I got a bad vibe. You know, so the bad vibes are real. It's not it, it, it isn't that metaphysical. I think it is very physical, except that we don't I really so have. Uh, the right mechanistic, mathematically modeled, logical basis to understand it. Well, so we have to grow those systems, have to expand them, you know? Absolutely. People have done that before, you know? They have. And um, so a question that I'd put to you, because I, I like your imagination, and I like the way that your mind works, going purely off of imaginative speculation, where does the energy and where do the me the memories go? Is it an akashic record? What what do you think? Based on 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 nothing solid, <laughs> I just think it would be fun to to try to conjure up some kind of mythos here. Well, I think that's a terrific question. I think that is what we're involved in. Uh, well, let me tell you what my current sort of thinking is. Uh, yes. I think that the the nature of the mind, the nature of consciousness, the nature of spirit and soul, all of those words, the Greeks took great pains to uh, differentiate between. But I think we can blur them a little bit and say, well, we're not quite sure where precisely those boundaries lie. Mm -hmm. But if we looked more at consciousness as what, what gives us the capability to function in the world, to communicate with other people, to maintain any kind of integrity of self, however delusional that might be, I see that as, as being based on a vast substrate of quantum level associative patterns, some of which are unique to us for whatever reason, and, and that may be a permanent mystery. Some of those may be instilled or uh, created or incited uh, at very early stages of, of childhood or you know even pre-birth. Some of them may come down in some sort of evolutionary pattern through all of the ages and all of the organisms. Uh, I mean, many people from uh, from Jung to Wilhelm Reich to even, you know, some very serious, uh, very pragmatic biologists, you know, see that 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 continuity. And that may be where the hard wire, the USB cable really works is is at the genetic level. All of those things may be working. Remember, we said in, in a, I think, a really important one from Ulysses S. Grant that you know, there could be a third man in the woods, a yep. third person in the woods Two, just because two people go into the woods to have a duel doesn't mean there isn't a third already there. The idea being, let's not oversimplify and say, well, there's only just one cause. What if there's a convergence 
of things. Mm -hmm. And signals always do have a degree of interference of, you know, inductance and, and resistance within them by definition. And I think there, if we look at it in terms of an oscillation rather than as a fixed memory, uh, so the, 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 what we consider a memory, say the lyrics to a song, rather than thinking of that as some fixed little file sitting in some part of our brain's geography, mm-hmm. uh, for starters, there's a the question of how we access that, you know, that leads to the home, you know, the, the problem called the, uh, homunculus, you know, who's, right. Who's the computer operator operating the computer operator and on and on and on. So you get these little miniature sort of figures in our brain. What if if really what we're accessing is is an oscillation, you know, between associative patterns? And if in fact we are the oscillation, there's no, there isn't really the first person doing the controlling of that at all. Rather, we are at any given moment the oscillation that's happening. So does that mean that every time you have a memory, that's the first time you've ever had that memory? That's a very interesting question. And I think the answer is yes, in a ceremonial magic sense. And this is one of the things that that we can find in magic uh, practice around the world. To some extent, that it was a stepping out of time, stepping out of memory. You know, people uh, in, in conducting a ceremony would say, well, yes, this is the first time. We are the first people within the ceremonial frame. They might not, they might not make that, you know, claim outside that. that that's the point of the magic. That's mm-hmm. the point of, of the, the whole practice of this uh, all, almost always communal ceremony. They, they, it needs the communal energy to reinforce and to strengthen the signal. But yeah, I think that is a way to think of it. So that also means that the relationships that you have with people are the result of calibrated processes rather than history. Does that make sense? um, What's a better way to put this? Um, So, you know, when I wake up in the morning, and I say good morning to my wife, and I feel feelings of love for her. One way of thinking about that would be that you know we have a history together, and we have developed this this kind of love. But a potential, uh, not counterpoint, but different way of thinking about that would be that over over time, I I have sort of calibrated my 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 tuning fork my tuning device uh to feel those feelings all like every time for the first time it's getting a little garbled here but i'm, I'm trying to get at something that i'm just not articulating or is is, is this coming through or do i need to think about this some more? well it, it it's it it is something i'm definitely getting a signal uh uh I, I hear a couple of, of different things. So let's mm-hmm. use our, our uh, technique of triangulation. And, mm-hmm. and mine might be very clumsy here, uh, but at least might might help you focus more t- and, and would get me clearer t- knowing what, what you actually mean. The first thing I thought about with relationships, and we've, we've used this, this is a concrete George Lakoff metaphor, uh, of, of vines, 
that connect relationships uh, mm-hmm. within Melanesia. We've talked about that within ter- in terms of, of New Guinea and, and the Solomon Islands, which is why vines play such an important role uh, physically in, in their ceremonies, like the land diver uh, practices of, of Pentecost Island. But they talk about relationships and connections and personal networks uh, in terms of vines. And you have to make sure that, that, that it's still strong. So in other words, your relationship with Rios is something that has to be reaffirmed and to some extent reinvented mm-hmm. every day to right. stay fresh and healthy and strong, you know, robust. Otherwise, it just begins to ossify. And we all know that in relationship. I mean, that is the cause of of, of divorce. Mm-hmm. That's the cause of, of, of a lot of things just going south is that uh, we haven't thought of them in terms of a dynamic oscillation that we have to attend to. We've thought of them as static nouns, as kind of artifacts that we can carry around if we want to. But, you know, guess what? We get tired of carrying stuff around. But if it was a vine that we were, you know, greasing with sort of, you know, interesting oil and keeping fresh and limber and had a sensual sort of connection to and really acknowledged our our, our dependence on it, but also our joy in that dependence. Well, that's kind of cool. That gives us something to work with. Um, the other uh, notion that, that we've talked about is Edward T. Hall, the anthropologist who I'm just a huge admirer of. And his very physical, concrete work with uh, the best video, film, and still camera uh, technology of his time, documenting how people actually do tune in to each other very, very physically. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is true of couples. They did a lot of work with kids on playgrounds, and they could really pick out like who the leader kids were. And they weren't always the obvious choices. These were people that that other bodies and minds were tuning into in a completely subconscious way, probably. Um, so they're, those are my two uh, uh, triangulation points to offer up. Did that help any? It does because it helps to put aside the idea of memory and not try to fit memory into it and go with vibes instead. Um, so for example, when I do wake up and I say good morning to Rios and, you know, looking at her and I, you know, I kind of like smile internally and, you know, I look at my son and smile internally when I'm doing those things, if I choose to remember, uh, if I choose to call up a memory or tune into a memory or what have you, I can do that. But the feelings that I feel for both of those people or, you know, you or my mother, um, my friends, family, all this kind of stuff, right? You don't think, oh, hey, <clears throat> you know, I'm having a good time talking to my friend Chris because, you know, five years ago we took a picture with a, a mini Mr. T. Is that you, you see what I'm saying? Like it's not it's yes. not memory related. We are um, attuned or calibrated together so that when we get together, our little dancing vines or, or tentacles or however you want to put it right our little energy tentacles are are playing right they're 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 having a, a, a dance and we recognize that and we're calibrated to that it's not it isn't directed toward memory so that that actually helps smooth that out for me 
right? Like memories, like the relationships are not contingent on memory at all, which is a huge thing for people who think that they totally are, you know, oh, I can't get along, you know, with my wife because, you know, she cheated on me or something like that. And it's like, what we might, what, what I think we're saying here is that, you know, that memory might cause a kind of energy that that doesn't allow your, uh, your, your, <laughs> your mind tentacles to dance anymore. <laughs> but what we're suggesting is that if you can somehow recalibrate those things, the, the memory is not going to keep you from continuing a relationship. It's, it's the, it's, it's the being off that's keeping you from doing that. Right. And I, I, I think that the, the, the key word is relationship and, and to, uh, to look back at, at something, I mean, one of my favorite quotations that, uh, or uh, metaphor analogies that, that has been that kind of emerged was uh, something that you uh, flagged from, from William James about, you know, the fact that humans uh, can be likened to cats and dogs in a library. You know, we're, we're kind of uh, really dealing with things on a very uh, superficial level, yeah. you know, relative to what they could be. But think about, you know, a, lo a lot of what people would say a library is, is a collection of books, which sounds terribly dead, doesn't it? It sounds a little bit to me like a kind of graveyard. And I think for people who are readers and thinkers and, and writers, you know, uh, we have a much richer and, and, and more animate sense of, of, of libraries. But, but even go further and, and think about libraries in terms of not just meeting grounds for uh, people, for discussions, for, for people getting a break from the loneliness of, of being home, to, to read some magazines or to have book club meetings or think of, of the books checked out and a dialogue and, in, and a dialectic with with history and literature and study. You know, there's a huge sense of a dynamic process that is much more important than the collection of books you know this mm -hmm. is uh this is what started uh gilbert riles off on on his whole sense of categories the the model that he used was was a university and someone you know really goes well the a university is the bricks and mortar it's the campus and they're missing the sense of the university being a community of knowledge a certain set of protocols a way to have discussions and disputes, a way to provide evidence, uh, an engagement with a history and a tradition of learning and revision of knowledge. You know, that's what really uh, a university is. That's really what a library is. That's what a culture is. And that is what we mean by culture with a capital C. That's in that direction. And therefore, the ghost signal. It's it's a real constant appreciation of the verb mm -hmm. in life rather than the nouns. Yes. And a movement towards movement. Yeah. You know? Right. That's the movement. <laughs> yeah, the movement towards movement. No, I love that. Yeah, lots to think about there. And um, I think that we've uh, digressed pretty intensely in, <laughs> in the Patreon section, which is great. I love these episodes. This is what we call a toy box episode. Right. We put some we put some new toys on the floor, but also explored some cool ideas. I like that uh, when I pressed you, you had an answer for that. I, I actually didn't know whether you uh, 
you were you were going to bite or not, and I'm really glad that you did. <laughs> um, so this this has been a ton of fun. Do we want to maybe kind of outline a direction to go in next time because we're getting close to uh, practical tip and dream time? So yeah, yeah. okay. I I, I want to plant a seed. Uh, yeah. The other day I was out for a drive uh, and I, I had an experience which is there to be had all the time. I looked down at my cell phone and suddenly the time had just changed, which means I'd crossed over into Arizona, a different time zone. And time zones are fascinating. I think that anything to do with time is very important. It has a lot to do with language. It has a lot to do with everything. Um, it, certainly it has a lot to do with, with the idea of culture with a capital C and therefore the ghost signal. Uh, I will plant the seed for, for next time that time zones are a very good example of how people get confused because we often think of them in terms of being completely socially constructed, artificial, historically based, and to some extent arbitrary. And there is some truth in that. There is no question. And yet they're clearly based on absolute physical concrete truths in a larger context and those impact on everything every aspect of human life they have to do with our entire sense of the planet longitude and latitude direction uh time cal uh, time on every level from calendars down to the second hand on a watch so there's a there's not one or the other answer there isn't, yes, these are completely socially constructed, or are they completely arbitrary? Of course, they're or, or completely objective. Of course, they're not. Uh, you, you don't uh, go up in space and see the international date line marked on the surface of the Earth. No one's saying you do. But we need a different way to think about that particular uh, binary. But by representation, many binaries like that, because those are getting in the way of us understanding and forging a new sense of more of a dynamic sense of oscillation rather than static artifact noun driven understanding, mm -hmm. which is, you know, connected with our idea of memories being in our brain and a, a really a very tired mechanistic viewpoint that is just not getting us anywhere at all mm -hmm. so that that's coming up um excellent but here's my here's my my tip um and this relates to some of the things that we've been talking about um i was giving advice to a, a younger person former student who's facing uh, the challenges of, of really starting off adulthood, getting a, uh, I just want to say there's a beautiful thunderstorm in progress now. It's just started jealous. the last couple of I'm minutes. I'm very jealous of this. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, but this young person is facing the challenges of, 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 of getting launched in a career, getting a gig. Um, and it, it's tough going. And I, I found myself uttering the platitude which I no one likes to do that, but I, I you know was talking about don't take things personally, mm -hmm. and fortunately for me, uh, the ghost radio signal kicked in, and I had a follow up thought to that, mm -hmm. and my thought was this: that when we do take things personally, 
when we overly identify and are concerned about our identity, that's actually a subset of anthrocentrism. And I had never thought of it that way. Mm. I, I had thought, well, I, here I am taking things personally and I'm isolated unto myself. But really it's part of a bigger thing of that human focus, you know? Mm-hmm. It's a subset of anthrocentrism. And that raises the question, well, what, what is anthrocentrism a subset of? And my point is, when we really listen closely to categories handed to us, we start to have moments of rebellion, mm. of, of thinking that, listen, we don't have to accept all those categories, all those distinctions. Uh, we can actually rejig that. And I think when we feel we can hack life, mm-hmm. when we feel like we can take some control, that's the crystal radio attitude of, no, I can, I can rewire this. I can do something yeah. different. I'm not going to just take it out of the box. You know, mm-hmm. I can do something myself with this and I, I'm going to find out, I'm going to take the thing apart if I have to, to work out how it can work more effectively, you know? And I think that we need to feel that sense of empowerment. And whenever we do it in even the smallest way, something changes. Mm-hmm. Anytime you can do something for yourself that you might have asked someone about, oftentimes because of laziness, let's not forget. Um, and I'm thinking of things like you know questions about computers or technology or anything. If you can just face that on your own, as small and incidental or mundane, trivial, whatever you want to say, it can lead to a very powerful chain reaction of new capabilities. I agree with that a hundred percent. And I have, I have a mundane example with a video game (laughs) that I've been playing. Um, These, it's a game called Bloodborne and you're, you know, you hunt uh, monsters and vampires and things like that. Uh, It's a (laughs) gorgeous looking game, but these uh, particular series of games are known for their difficulty. They're, they're called, you know, some of the hardest games ever made. Um, and the reason for that is that in every single one of these games, you're dropped into a very immersive, uh, realistic's the wrong word, but very detailed world, uh, and you're not given a rule book. There's uh, no explanation as to how you're supposed to do anything. Because we have the internet, it is very possible to go online and find out everything you could ever want to know about this game and everything that you could ever want to find. But I decided for this one that I was going to, you know, play it on my own and there are some things that you find in this game that happen by pure chance there's no real way that you could uh unless you're some kind of genius i guess piece together the clues that the game hands you as to how to do things it's it's a game that's meant to be completed collaboratively with the internet so i'm sort of not playing it correctly in that in that sense but since i started doing that i became curious about other things in life i oddly enough started reading more books and finishing them quicker uh having a bit more of a voracious appetite for for knowledge and uh 
any what I like about what you're saying is that you know any small step that you take towards agency and and feeling like you can kind of you know take that control back a little bit has ripple effects towards every other part of your life you know you don't need to call your mom um, every time your your child does something that you've never seen before you know you could just sit back and say well it's he seems to be doing okay let's see how this plays out exactly you know and there is no other way really i don't believe to to learn except by oblique means really mm-hmm. i i think it's uh it's very strange that we so often focus on on the on these direct learning approaches which sometimes work i I'll, I'll grant that i mean and i and i as a teacher i i try to sort of work directly sometimes <laughs> uh but i know that that it's often the small things. And there are so many, uh, I mean, there are great wisdom traditions behind this. There are uh, one of the, the principles of military intelligence and, uh, and propaganda and, and cultural change is don't you know, try to change uh, a people's major values. Do, right. do small things, yep. you know, uh, go after, uh, the, they're often very important, but they, they may appear peripheral or minor, but they set off chain reactions of agency and possibility. And if we, we really do want change, we, we should not dismiss anything as being, oh, that's just small or, or unimportant. No, it's not. If you really want to change your routine uh, and change your, your frame and, and change your mind, mm-hmm. uh, the only way to do it is, is obliquely. Yep, absolutely. All right. I think we're ready for your dream. Are you dream. ready for the dream? Yes, sir. Okay. All right. Well, the first part has some semblance of, of, of reality to it. I came back uh, from this uh, photographic safari the other day up north, and I'd gone to sort of uh, check out well, where Michael Heiser, the earth artist, lives in this weird little, very small community. Just wanted to get a feel for... Uh, He's done some major works around here. And I came back and I did stop off at, at a very, uh, at a big crossroads gas station convenience store. That much is real. But in my dream, the convenience store was really, di- it was like something out of J.G. Ballard. It was organized in a high rise sort of situation. So, and it was based on some sort of social status or loyalty points or something. But the, the better off you were, the clo- you were on the ground and getting great service. And the, the lower you on the totem pole, the higher you had to rise up on this. And there were levels upon levels. And there were all these homeless people and, and people hanging off and living on the upper levels. And fortunately, I didn't need any gas and I didn't need to go to the restroom. I was just there checking out the scene. But it so daunted me. I got back on the road and I, I missed my turnoff. I ended up on Termite Boulevard, which is a name I just love. And I start driving and I'm running parallel to the interstate in my dream. And I think, oh, it'll be okay. I'll get, there'll be a junction. Well, it starts to wind and twist and I don't see the highway anymore. And it's starting to get really, really barren. And I come to this chain link fence, very Nevada, still very sort of, you know, Nevada's a very surreal place. So this is all seeming, you know, kind of realistic. 
And I see in the distance this very peculiar, like, display home village, you know, kind of an unfinished suburb sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But there's something not right about it. And I can't drive the car any any uh, farther. There's a, there's a gate, but I can get around it. So I think, well, damn it, I'm going to go explore. So I go walking into the village. And at first, the people seem to be just these static mannequins. And I realized I've seen those mannequins before. They're J.C. Penny mannequins from Boomtown or Blast Town, the mm -hmm. atomic mm -hmm. testing villages mm -hmm. that were built out in the Nevada desert. Yep. And I think, okay, but they, they, they start moving around and okay. they're animatronic, they're robots. Okay. And I think, oh, wow, this is, getting, this is getting very odd. But they're all precisely exactly what the J.C. Penny mannequins looked like. So we're talking, you know, 1940s, very odd, artificial-looking white people. <laughs> very, very straight white people. Yep. And I start to engage with them expecting, I'm not sure what, but expecting something kind of like what they look like. And this is what completely freaks me out. They may look like they're from the 1940s, these JCPenney white people, but they're incredibly woke they are fanatically woke. <laughs> and my mind cannot deal with the contrast between what they're saying. Like I pass a car out in the, in the driveway of one of these houses and it is absolutely overwhelmed with bumper stickers. Remember when you talked about NASCAR drivers being covered with their sponsor yep. things? I think that image stuck with me because mm -hmm. this, like, this car is plastered with every woke slogan that you can imagine and yet the house and the people look like 1940s jc penny white people mannequins it's just freaks me out so i decide to head back to the car i'm not comfortable and then i get bad vibes and i think i'm gonna actually start jogging and then i think no i maybe i'll, I'll i'm gonna i'm gonna run <laughs> And I chance to look behind me, and there are about a hundred mannequin kids no. riding these 1940s bicycles with big balloon tires, and they are after me. And I get back to the car, and I, <laughs> I fucking just crank it up yep. and get back on Termite oh, Boulevard. No, unfortunately, like wake that. up. I don't like that at all. Oh, well, I'm glad that you woke up. Um, uh, ah, yeah. me too. One, I, one, I was saved from uh, Termite Boulevard. Yeah, the escape, escape from Termite Boulevard, the name of your next novel. But um, Jesus. you know, uh, a storm started up here while you were telling that story. Really? Yeah, and I had no idea that it was even on the uh, the radar. So very interesting. Oh. I, I heard it. I said, "What the hell is that?" And sure enough that's cool it is cool that's cool it is cool uh another synchronicity um it's just with our show we always mention jung carl jung um and today when i was driving back from my mother-in-law's house it was about a it's about an hour drive and uh i was behind an suv that had a vanity license plate that said jung one number one and uh i thought that was kind of cool i was like huh that's an odd 
entity plate to have. Now, I mean, the odds of us talking about some that Carl Jung in any given No Country episode are pretty high, because he is in our pantheon. But still, I thought that was kind of neat. Jung won. I think that is cool. You don't think they mean young one, do they? Man, I hope. A part of me is like, it would be so cool if this was like a psychoanalyst or something, you know? Yeah. It would be kind of LCD if it was young one, wouldn't it? Yeah. And that's. People who remember what I mean by LCD. It probably is that now, thinking about the LCD angle. Um, but, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, you know, burst the, the balloon. But why use the J? You know, maybe the Y no. was just taken. You know, maybe the. Let Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. That's another thing I think that's worth bringing back in style. You know, what's What's the harm in generally speaking giving people the benefit of the doubt? You never, you never do know. You know, you really don't. Oh, when I was a teenager, everybody was fake and phony. I was in total Holden Caulfield mode. Um, and I had buddies who would just get along with people where I couldn't. I'd be like, how do you get along with those people? Like, can't you tell that they're posers and they're faking and this and that? And they would always look at me and just be like, dude, we have no idea what you're talking about. You know, like he's just a cool guy. And I'm like, yeah, but it's a put on. And they were giving this person the benefit of the doubt, and I wasn't. And when I learned that, life got so much easier. Because I do that, too. I just give people the benefit of the doubt. If a statement can be taken two ways, and one of them is sincere, and the other one is calling me an asshole, I can just pretend, you know? that Nobody can stop me from pretending that this person is actually being nice to me. <laughs> I don't have to pick up on the sarcasm signals. And by the way, if somebody's ever being sarcastic or rude to you and you just completely brush it off and take what they say sincerely, they either, it endears them to you or it drives them nuts, which are both positive outcomes when it comes to Absolutely they are. So. Absolutely. That's a good way to think of it. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the idea of, 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 of projecting limitations on, on people's thinking and life experience. I mean, it's very easily done and, and there's some wisdom to it. This is the argument for being uh, kind of cynical and, and misanthropic generally is, well, then you won't be disappointed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you made me think of a time when I was, it was, I was so out of context. I was on San Pablo Avenue in downtown Oakland. I was waiting for an AC transit bus and I happened to be reading Chaucer, the Canterbury Tales. And, and that couldn't have been, more, well, it couldn't have been more in keeping really with the situation. And yet you think, well, that's kind of hoity-toity and very educated for the, the crowd around me. Mm-hmm. And there was this one denizen, I mean, he was hardcore. He was an old hippie, homeless uh, creature uh, moving over into some sort of Lovecraftian other dimension. But oh, yeah. he looked at my book and I thought, oh my God, here we go. And he looked at me and goes, one that April with the Shura Sutta, the drought of March and perished to the Ruta, you know, and starts with, mm-hmm. the, with the prologue. And I think, oh my God. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, you know, here I just, you know, I, I've really just written him off as some sort of, uh, creature 
mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's your comeuppance, Chris, you know? Sure. You, you, you know, don't judge too quickly, lest ye be uh, thought of as uh, an idiot, too. <laughs> right, right. And it also, you know, b- before we go here, it makes me think of the concept that is so popular in common uh, discussions about mansplaining. There's this idea Ugh. that men explain things particularly to to women although that's not true men explain things to men as well all the time it's how we communicate but the idea is that they're explaining it to women because they think that the women to whom they are explaining are stupid and i think that is just such a misreading of what's going on because i think when a man begins to explain something to you uh i think it's actually a sign that he wants to be your friend that he thinks that you're capable of understanding what he's about to explain. And there is something uh, sacred and, and and bonding about the exchange of information, I think, between, between friendly adult males that just, for whatever reason, just gets completely tangled up and, and many times, maybe not all the time, but many times, I think, misinterpreted by, by the women who are being explained to. It's one of those things where, you know, I'm imagining some kind of enormous gorilla, you know, uh, kind of like grabbing a woman and and squeezing her and like, you know, starting to pull on her hair. And, you know, the gorilla's keeper is telling this this screaming woman, like, you don't have to scream. It's it's because he likes you, you know, Um, it's a good sign. But that's that's always how I've interpreted or interpreted rather. Uh, the, the the whole mansplaining thing going back to just like giving people the the benefit of the doubt right you know it's like maybe this guy's not trying to make you feel stupid maybe he just maybe this is how he makes friends yeah look you know that whole uh topic is is just it's very have you ever actually i mean it, it's based on uh, it was it was a, a a journalistic article and then a book i can't remember the author's name uh, but she'd been she'd written several books before, and uh, it, it had some specific you know groundwork behind it, but it got embraced in a way that's just so uh, ridiculous. Uh, and one of my students, um, who is very she has a real future in comedy. She did a, a great sketch about that, mm-hmm. where there's a woman talking to a guy, and she and the woman is always is asking him for his advice on a series of topics. Well, what would you do? What should I do? And every time he answers, she accuses him of of mansplaining. Perfect. And of course, he's got nowhere to go. Right. You know? Yeah. No, that's Um, that's often what I'll see things and it'll be like, you know, I'm an astrophysicist and this guy who I was on a date with decided to, you know, explain to me how the, the planets revolve around the Earth. And I'm like, I mean, I don't think that guy thinks that you don't know that. I think he was just maybe trying to have a conversation. He was probably a little intimidated, you know, and trying to share some info to say, hey, you know, I I get it too. I don't know. Give people the benefit of the doubt. That's all I'm saying. Most. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think that, that you know, going back to my photographing, you know, so-called mundane objects, uh why do we need to be so certain about what what something important uh, 
the set is. I mean, there's always the question of what's important to someone else. They may need to say something that, that seems kind of trivial or you've heard a million times or, you know, whatever, but it's important emotionally and psychologically, maybe not intellectually. But why in any sense try to over-determine and predetermine what, what is interesting and important in any sense? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I think that, that that's a really... Uh, weird value that that needs to be transcended because oftentimes there's no reason for that at all and if we do give the benefit of the doubt and think well i'm here in this moment and and this is what's being discussed maybe i should pay attention to maybe something maybe there'll be a synchronicity maybe something that i thought of uh you know two days ago will come back you Mm -hmm. know Mm -hmm. out of the the ether or wherever it's gone you know, if you stay open and loose rather than fixed and, you know, that's what I, I really aspire to being more limber psychologically. That's mm-hmm. that's my uh, key goal for the rest of my life. <laughs>